Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Ezekiel 5, 1 through 17. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And these, of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds." Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you, and when I execute these judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for your destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts among you, against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken." Now, like I said before we started our recording, because a lot of this has already been covered, and when we examined Leviticus 26, we won't spend too much time in this chapter. We're just going to cover this whole chapter tonight in this one study. But there are a few things here that I want to take the time to pull out. God has Ezekiel cut off all of his hair and his beard to picture the humiliation Israel was to experience. And he also used portions of his hair to picture what was to befall the people of Israel. So as you know, he was told to take a sharp sword, use it as a razor, and cut off all his hair and his beard. He was to take all that hair, pile it up, and he was to weigh it out into three equal measurements. One third of his hair he was to put in the middle of the city. Remember, he's built this diorama, this picture of the seeds that's going to come against Jerusalem. He was to take a third of the hair, and he was to put it in the city, and he was to burn it with fire. Look again at chapter 5, verse 2. The first part it says, A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. Jump over to verse 12. God explains through Ezekiel what that means. He says, A third part of you shall die of pestilence, that means plague, diseases, and be consumed with famine in your midst. So he says, A third of the Jews are going to, that are in Jerusalem are going to be killed by disease and famine. We already saw that in a lot of our study earlier how there's going to be such famine that they're going to be eating Ezekiel bread and all that kind of stuff. But he said a third of them are going to be killed by diseases and famine in the city. Then he says a third are going to be killed outside the city by the sword. And if you remember when we looked earlier, going back to 2 Kings chapter 25, when we looked at the recording and the account of when Jerusalem was besieged in 586, 588 to 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, some of them escaped through the wall, remember, and they ran out of the city. What happened to them? 
they were killed. And here he says a third of them are going to get outside the city, but they're going to be killed outside the city. Go again, again to verse 2 and look at the second part of it. He says, and a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. So he's to take a third of his hair. Some of it was, a third of it was burned in the city to describe those that died inside the city because of pestilence and famine. And then he takes another third. He puts them outside the city and he's to chop it up with his sword to, to talk about the fact that they're going to be killed outside the city. It said, explained in verse 12. He says, and a third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And then it takes another third, and he then takes that third and scatters it to the wind. Just lets it go and get blown away. And you see in verse 2, he says, And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe, unsheathe the sword after them. Jump again to verse 12, the explanation. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds, and will unsheathe the sword after them. So now we see so far, there's a third of them are burned inside the city as a picture of the pestilence and the famine. A third of the hair is going to be out, killed outside the city and a third are going to be scattered to the winds. And they're going to be, as you, if you know anything about the account of what happened during that time, some of them escaped and they ran to Egypt and other places, but they got killed in that whole process as well. The sword went after them there. But go back real quick to verse 3. And he said, you shall take from these small, a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. From that last third that's going to be scattered to the wind, he was to take a small number of those hairs and tuck it in the hem of his robe. Protect it. Keep it separate. Remnant. A remnant. And we're going to be dealing with the remnant tonight in a lot more detail. Um, so, but you see here, there's a picture here of what's going to happen in the last days. Remember the prophecies about what's about to happen to the nation of Israel in the besiege of Jerusalem. How they're going to die in the famine. Some are going to be killed outside the city. Others are going to just be scattered and they're going to be killed as they're chased to other nations. But there's going to be a small portion of those that are scattered to the winds that he's to take those hairs, put them in his garment and protect them. But keep reading. Look at verse 4. And of these again, this is the remnant, if you will, of hair, the small portion of the third part. And of these again, you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, fire will come out into all the house of Israel. In other words, what he says here is a picture of the fact that there's going to be a remnant that he protects of the Jews. They're not going to be all destroyed. There's going to be a remnant that are protected. But of those remnants, some of those later on are going to go through the fire and judgment as well, which we know is going to happen to the nation of Israel in, in the days to come during the tribulation. Again, we'll deal with this in a lot more detail later on in our study. So just hold off on that for now. What I want to do is ask you a question tonight. How bad will this famine in the city be? I mean, you read it here. I'm sorry? Bad enough. I mean, we were here two weeks ago when we looked at the fact that the bread was going to be so bad that they could hardly eat it and it was going to be cooked on dung. Now we see that the famine's going to get even worse than that. The scripture says you're going to eat your children and the children are going to eat their dads. That's how bad it's going to be that they're going to, they're going to turn to cannibalism during that time. But I want you to see, this isn't the first time they've heard this. See, it's easy for us to read this prophecy and go, whoa, I can't believe it. God said they're going to go to cannibalism and that's going to be part of his judgment on them. Well, I want to take you back and show you that the Bible's been saying this all along. God had warned them years and years and hundreds of years prior to this. Go back to Leviticus chapter 26. There's a deeper reason for this that you will find out later tonight as we keep reading. But for now, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want you to tell me if you can see it as we go through some of our passages tonight. In Leviticus chapter 26, look at verses 27 through 29. In Leviticus 26, verse 27, If but in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins." You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Now, when was the book of Leviticus written? Was it after they'd gone into the promised land or prior? Prior. So they had been told before he brought them into the promised land, when he gave them the whole law. And that's what Deuteronomy is, a recounting of all the law and everything, and a telling of how they go into the promised land. Prior to them going in, he had even told them back in Leviticus 26, if after all this stuff I say I'm going to do to you to get your attention, Israel, if you still won't listen, I'll multiply your judgment sevenfold, and you're going to eat your children. 
Now, that's not the only time. Go back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Again, prior to them entering the land, listen to what the Scripture says here in verses 53 through 55. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which excuse me, your enemies shall distress you in all your towns. Here at the end of God saying, if you obey me, I'll give you all these blessings. And then he lists, here's what's going to happen if you don't obey me. At the end of it, he told them way back in Deuteronomy, if you don't listen, here's what's going to happen. Now, what's encouraging is if you remember from Ezekiel, God said, I'm about to do something that I'll never do again. That's something my wife told me last night after the study. She goes, you didn't bring that out. I wish you had. Isn't it neat that we know that God will never flood the whole earth again because he's made the promise? At the same time, here he said, even though Israel's going to go through a really hard time and, and things are going to be so bad on the earth, the Bible says, during the tribulation period, that if he doesn't cut those days short, no one will live. He's not going to bring the cannibalism judgment back, he said, which is, a, which is a great thing. But he told them way, 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 way back. If you don't listen, this is how bad it's going to get. Go to Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah prophesies the same thing. Remember, Jeremiah is prophesying around the same time as Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 9, sorry, 19. Jeremiah 19, verses 6 through 9. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and I will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. So Jeremiah even said, guys, this is what God said, and here's what's going to happen. Ezekiel prophesies. Remember, this is through God speaking through Ezekiel. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He says it twice. Go to Lamentations. Turn over one more book from Jeremiah, and we see that it actually happened. I'm going to show you two places in Lamentations chapter 2 and Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 20. Look what it says. It says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Do you see it? Should children have to eat, I mean, should women have to eat the fruit of their womb and the children of their tender care? Jump over to chapter 4. Look at verse 10. It says, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now, as I said, there's a couple of reasons why this is gonna, has, did happen to Israel and during that siege. One of them is God had said, if you don't listen, here's how bad it's going to get. They still ignored the Lord and it ended up being that bad. But you'll see later on, there's another reason why God had this judgment come upon them. But that'll become clear in a second. I'm going to ask you another question then tonight. Why is this judgment so severe? Now, the answer I want you to pull out from Ezekiel 5. Don't just throw out an answer. Look quickly at Ezekiel 5. There's a couple of reasons that are here tonight from this passage why God says this judgment is so severe. Can anybody give me an idea as to why that is? Very good. It's because their disobedience was worse than the nations around them. That's one of the main reasons. That's one of the first one. You see, God's judgment is always in proportion to how much light we have received. I want you to keep that in mind. 
And we're going to pull that out. Look at Ezekiel chapter 5. Look at verses 5 through 9. He says, Therefore, says, thus says the Lord, the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes, more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I'll never do again. Look at what he says. He said, I put you in the center of the nations. I put you there for a reason. Now, was Israel more wicked than the other nations around them? Not in the sense of they did stuff that the other nations didn't do. Why was Israel more wicked? And you're going to see from Scripture is because they knew better. There's a difference between those who sin who don't know better and those who sin who know better. And Israel had been given a role by God, and they had been in intentionally by God, led by God through the wilderness to that spot on the earth. And if you knew anything about the history and the topography and the geography of the land and the world at that time, where Jerusalem was and is, was the center of the world. Where the nations began and God created man and put them on the earth and they were to go and scatter from there. That was the center of the earth. And if you were going to go anywhere back in that day from Egypt to Assyria or wherever, you had to go through Jerusalem. And God intentionally put them in that part of the land and that part of the earth so that they would be his witness and his light to the rest of the world. And not only that, he revealed himself to them specifically and clearly showed up in the pillar of fire and the cloud and the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law and the commandments and the speaking on the holy mountain and the having the prophets and the priests and all this. God revealed himself to these people and then intentionally put them in a certain spot so they could be used as a light to the nations. And then what did they do? They became like a black hole where they took the darkness from all the nations around them and sucked it in and carried it into their lifestyle. And you're going to see how bad it gets in a little bit. But God said, I put you there, and this judgment is severe because you, you knew better. Go to Romans chapter 3 and kind of lay a scriptural foundation of everything that I just said to you. As Paul's dealing with here in the beginning of Romans, the fact that everybody's guilty, whether you're Jew or Gentile, everybody's guilty because of sin. Everybody's guilty before God. He makes an interesting statement, though, in chapter 3, verse 1. He said, then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Do you see it? Just like I just told you, the Jews had been given a revelation from God and his words and his statutes. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's go back and hear when God actually tells it to him through Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 8. Listen to what God said he was going to do and why he had chosen them and what their purpose was. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the, ba the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules that the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Where? In the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God that is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Have you ever thought about the fact that this nation of Israel lived at a time in which 
so all the other nations worshipped all these false gods, but they worshipped these gods that were out there somewhere. The sun and the moon and the stars and all that stuff they worshipped. Yet God, the true God, revealed himself to this people, created for himself this people, brought them into the center of all those nations, and he himself came to live there with them in their midst. He dwelt in the tabernacle. He dwelt in the temple. They knew better. And the Bible's very, very clear, and I want to show you this. The Bible's very, very clear that those who have been given much, much is required. Go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses, 10, uh, verses 12 through 16. In Luke chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. He says, I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now this was, remember, he sent them out two by two, and he says, when you go into a town, let your peace go out if it's received, Stay, if not, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And then he says this, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. And keep reading. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. We all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because of their wickedness and how God just wiped them off the face of the earth with the fire and the brimstone. The Bible says on the day that he judges the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it'll be easier on the day of judgment for them than it will be for Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? They knew better. Think about what happened in Bethsaida and Chorazin. Jesus himself, God himself, walked in their midst. He performed miracles in their midst. And the Bible says that because of the amount of light they received, they will be held in higher accountability. Jump over to chapter 12 of Luke and look at verses 47 and 48. Like I said, I referenced that passage that we love to quote or we love to hear people talk about where to whom much is given, much will be required. And we've always in the back of our minds thought that means the rich people are God's going to hold them more accountable. We've thought it was tied to money. I want you to see from Scripture to whom much is given, much will be required is not tied to how much money you have. It's tied to how much light and revelation God has given you. Revelation, sorry, Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And for, from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now I'm going somewhere with this, and I hope you're with me. hope you've already tracked with me to where I'm going. First and foremost, one of the reasons from Ezekiel 5 that this judgment on Israel and Jerusalem was so severe was they were more wicked than the rest of the nations. Why? Because even though they did what the other nations did, they had more light. They had more revelation. They should have known better because God revealed to them his statutes and his rules and his commands, his law that said, don't do these things. And they did them anyway. And the scripture says, you all, did you catch I stopped talking about the Jews? We all will be judged according to how much light we've received. The lost world, when they stand before God at the white throne judgment, all those who have rejected Jesus will not be judged as much according to how much sin they committed as much as to how much light they received and how they responded to it. Folks, listen closely. Has America received a lot of light? Let's be honest. Whether you want to acknowledge that this was a Christian nation ever at one time or not, we, no one can deny that the United States of America was blessed by God with much revelation, with much truth, with much light, with much scriptural teaching. And actually for years, we as a nation were sending missionaries and folks all over the globe to spread that good news. Now nations are sending them here. 
And we think that we can escape a judgment of God as a nation as we, when we have known better, should know better, have had so much light given to us, then turn our back and just do what everybody else does and say it's okay. The Bible's very clear. The judgment will be worse for those who knew better. There's a second reason here, though, back in Ezekiel chapter 5, as to why this judgment was so severe. Go to verses, uh, just verse 11. Go to verse 11. He said, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. From here, what's the reason why, the second reason from this passage, why the judgment was so severe? Can you see it? Because they defiled the sanctuary. Don't miss this, folks. We've already seen this two weeks ago when we looked at the fact that Israel had been worshiping idols all along. Even in Egypt, they worshiped idols. As soon as they got up out of Egypt, when Moses disappeared up on the mountain, they quickly made a golden calf. And they had been worshiping on the high places all throughout. And they had been worshiping Baal. And there had been a history throughout the nation of Israel of worshiping false gods. But there came a point where that worship of false gods moved into the temple. And I'm going to show this to you. Here he talks about it. I'm going to take you back and show you a couple of passages. We're going to go into a whole lot more detail on this when we get to chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, you're going to see that Ezekiel's sitting in his house, and the Spirit of God takes him in a vision inside the temple and shows him what's going on inside the temple. And when you see what went on inside the temple, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be absolutely shocked. Oh, and by the way, you're also going to see in that day that we get to that study that a lot of that stuff they were doing in the temple, we're still doing today. But we'll save that for chapter 8. But let me just give you a basic overview. Go to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. By the way, that's the stars, the sun and the moon and the stars. Let me just say real quickly, I hope nobody here is uh, checking their horoscope to check on, you know, according to your birth sign and all that stuff, whether or not you're going to have a good day or a bad day or whether or not you should buy that car or whether or not you should marry this girl. That is letting the stars guide your life, and that's worshiping the host of heaven. I hope you all stay away from that. They worshiped the host of heaven and served them. Look closely at verse 4, though. And he, Manasseh, built altars where? Excuse me, in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he and the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Amasa led them astray, to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. By the way, did anybody catch what they also did? Not only did they bring this false worship and these idols into the temple, they did what? They burned their children, which is what the other nations were doing as offerings to their gods. Do you understand why part of the judgment was that they were to eat their own sons and daughters? 
You remember back when the nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt and into the promised land? And I'm sorry, they're not in the promised land yet. They're out in the wilderness, and God has Moses go up on the mountain. And while he's up there, they said, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. And they tell Aaron, make for us something to worship. And he puts together this golden calf and forms it with a tool, the Scripture even says. And then, of course, he tells Moses, I just, you know, I put it in the fire and this came out, you know. What did God have them do what did Moses, God through Moses, have them do when he came down and saw what they were doing? Does anybody remember the story? Go ahead, Chris. He ground up that idol, put it in their water, and had them drink it. In other words, you, wanna, you want this? Eat it. You want to offer your children? Eat them. You want to kill your kids, which is not who I am at all? Go ahead. I'll let you get your fill. It's kind of like some of you that when you were little and your father caught you smoking a cigar or a cigarette. You ever heard the stories of the dad saying, hey, you want this? Go ahead. I'm going to put you in the closet here, smoke this whole pack, and then I'll let you out. Kind of cured you, didn't it? This is what, one of the reasons why God knew they were going to do this. And he said, here's what the judgment's going to be. How did he know? Because he knows. He sees it all. It's all laid out for him. None of this is by accident. It's all right on schedule. You all do realize that this uh, election's right on schedule? Go to Ezekiel chapter 23. Man, I thank God that I know the Lord and I know his word. Otherwise, this would be a really, really crazy time to be on maybe in the United States, wouldn't it? I can't even imagine dealing with what's going to go on a week from, from now, not knowing the Scripture says God's in control. <laughs> they think they know, but they don't. Ezekiel 23, look at verses 36 through 39. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholiba? Remember, we already saw earlier in Ezekiel who Ahola and who Aholiba are. Do you remember? Ahola is who? The northern kingdom, Israel. And Aholiba is who? Judah, the southern kingdom. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholiba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols on the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at verses 30 through 34. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when no more Sorry, when it will no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. For the land shall become a waste. Now here we see God says they offered their children to these false gods which is something that I would never even think about doing. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son on this mountain that he was going to show him? But the scripture shows us here as we put it all together, God had never intended him to do that. The whole time it was to show the difference between Jehovah and these false gods of the rest of the world who have you actually sacrifice your kids. Abraham at this time getting to know who God is, learning to understand who this man is or this creator is that's calling him out of his land and out of his people and bringing him to this place. In this journey of Abraham getting to know him, God has him do something that parallels what the other nations are doing and the other gods or seems to parallel. But here we see God said, I never even ever considered 
considered doing that. But he had him do this to then not only have Abraham show that he was willing to serve God, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. But then at the same time as we know, for God to then reveal who he was and to provide the sacrifice himself in place of your own children. If you remember back in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, the nation of Israel is being judged by God and they cry out and they say, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? What shall I do? Do you want so many thousand rivers of oil or so many lambs or goats or my firstborn, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God says to them, no, he's told you, old man, what he wants, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He never wanted you to sacrifice your children for me. That was never God's intention. That whole Abraham, Isaac thing was God revealing to himself, I'll provide my son for you. Isn't that an amazing difference? The, the, the Muslims are sacrificing them, have to sacrifice themselves for their God. God says, I will sacrifice myself for you. There's a big difference. Like I said, when we get to chapter 8, we'll get into a whole lot more detail about the wickedness that was going on in the actual temple of God and what was actually happening. And folks, I cannot wait to get there because I think we need to hear some of these things because we'd be surprised how much of some of that stuff that was happening in the temple has carried into some parts of Christianity today. You'll be real surprised if you don't know what I'm talking about. But we have to wait till we get to chapter 8. I told you there were two reasons here in chapter 5 why I believe God's judgment was so severe. There's a third one here that isn't as clear, so I'm not going to say here's a third reason from here. But there's something here I want to pull out that I think might be helpful for us. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. In a, third part you shall die, a third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. What I want you to see here is because of their sin, they were to experience plague, famine, sword, and scattering. Now, on the surface, we don't see the scattering as a bad thing because some of those scattered survived, as we know. But I want you to understand that there's an element to the scattering that's just as severe as the plague and the sword and the famine. Where was the only place that God said that they could offer the sacrifices to have temporary atonement for their sin? In Jerusalem at the temple. And being removed from the land and with the temple being destroyed, where is their atonement going to come from? They had actually, in their sin, removed the way that had been provided by God for the temporary covering of their sin. Now, they're not going to be able to have their sin covered, temporarily even. They're now scattered, and they're going to have to be still in their sin. Oh, by the way, as foolish as it seems that they would actually defile the one place that God had provided to have a yearly atonement, picturing the once and for all atonement. Isn't it silly how many people today reject the only way that they can be made right before God? Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I'm saying this for a reason, and I'm going to go down this road and chase this rabbit real quick for a reason. I believe that we're about to find out who in the church really is a Christian and who isn't. As things continue to get worse and worse, as the Bible says they're going to, I have to be honest with you, I'm a little bit weird. I'm kind of glad. You know why? It's been really hard for me in 40 years of being a Christian, 40 plus years of being a Christian, and actually 30 plus years of preaching it's been hard for me because it's been easy for people to pretend to be a Christian. We've had it easy, and church life is such that it's been easy for people to pretend to be a Christian. And the Bible says there'll be people in our midst that aren't saved. And it's not for our, us to try to figure out who is and who isn't. But I will tell you this much. The Bible says the evidence of the Spirit 
is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. And the evidence of the flesh is envy, strife, factions, jealousy, dissensions, fits of rage, selfish ambition. And I can look you in the eye and tell you, in my 30-plus years of preaching, I have dealt way more, 80% to 20% with Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and following, which gives the evidence of the flesh. I haven't seen a lot of the evidence of the Spirit. Now, I have, thank God for those folks. But for the most part, I have dealt with church members who look more like the lost world than they do the saved world. But it's been easy for them to pretend to be a Christian. The Bible says that as things get worse, it's going to become evident who the real ones are. Why? Because when the seed that fell on the rocky soil, when the trouble comes, what happens to the seed that falls on the rocky soil? They go away. And there's a seed that falls on the thorny soil, which is caught up in the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of this world. Guess what, folks? When that goes away, what's going to be left? They fall away. In Hebrews chapter 10, listen closely to what the Scripture says. Look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't lose sight and don't forget the fact that we've already talked earlier tonight about the fact that those who have received much information and much understanding of the Scriptures will be judged in higher accountability than those who don't. Now, don't get scared as well and think, well, does that mean I can lose my salvation if I sin after I've been saved? No. Remember, as we look at Colossians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we've talked about this before, the Bible's very clear that at the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. The, the world was forgiven, yet they have to receive that forgiveness in order for it to take root in their lives. That's why in the story of the parable of the, uh, the unforgiving servant, he was forgiven a great debt. Yet he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant, which was evidence that he had never received the forgiveness that the father had given him. And therefore he was cast into prison till he could pay the last debt. He was forgiven, but he never received it. The world has been forgiven. Jesus, the God was in Christ. Listen closely. Colossians chapter one, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself through his death on the cross. Things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world. They have been paid for. They've been set apart. But they have to receive that sanctification by faith. So he says here, he's writing to a group of people who came out of Judaism to Christianity, but because of the persecution of Christians in the early part of the church age, they're thinking about going back to Judaism. The Hebrew writer spends the whole book saying in chapter 1, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. Why are you even thinking about going back to the things that are lesser? Oh, and by the way, if you decide that you don't respond to this in faith, there's no other sacrifice for sin. And if the people that rejected the law of Moses were judged severely on the account of two witnesses, how much more severe do you think it's going to be for you who know this truth, who have heard that he's the only way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father through him, that there is no other salvation under heaven by, by which men may be saved except Jesus? Those of you that have heard this truth and understand this, how much worse do you think it's going to be for you when you stand before the Father having rejected this offer, the spirit of grace and rejecting him and the blood of the Jesus that had sanctified you, but you didn't receive it? Do you not understand that on the day of judgment, it's going to be really really bad for you and we live in a country in which many 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 have heard and they laugh and they joke and they mock and I don't know who's here I don't know everybody in this room I don't know who's listening online and I just want to say to you in these days that things get worse please know that you're his and fully receive him by faith, because if you haven't, 
been sealed by His Spirit, you will be one of those who go away. Go to 1 John real quick, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 18 and following. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, he says, uh, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, who den he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Do you see it? There's going to be those, as things get crazier, who go away. But that means they never were of us. If they were, they would have stayed. And things are about to get really, really bad. I saw on one church's sign just recently, which I think is great, it said this, no matter what happens in the election, God's still in control. We need to keep that in mind. I'm going to spend the rest of our time that we have here, about 10 minutes left. I want to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at something that I previously mentioned in our study and a little bit tonight but I want to go a little bit deeper into it because I think there's a need to in our study for tonight. Go back to Ezekiel 5. Remember those few hairs spared the judgment in Ezekiel's robe? That small portion of that third part that was scattered to the wind that he was to take and put in the hem of his garment and protect it? All along, God has promised that as bad as Israel got, he would never fully wipe them out. He would always preserve a remnant by his grace. Now, I want you to hear me. We hear people a lot of times using the term remnant. The remnant never refers in the scriptures to the church. The church is not the remnant. We're a separate group that he's doing something to make the remnant jealous. And there has always been a remnant chosen by grace. God has always, through all time of history, had his 144,000, if you will, ready to go if you know, that were to be his time. But I want you to see from Scripture that I love that in this Ezekiel passage that he's talking about the future destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and how a third of them are going to be killed by famine and disease. Oh, they're eating there each other. And then a third of them are going to escape the city, but then they'll be killed. And a third are going to scatter to the wind, and they're going to be chased and killed. Of all that, there's still going to be a portion of the Jews that God is going to take and protect. And he's going to protect them because he's got a plan in the end that he's going to use which I want you to see, is going to be for all the nations to see. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 9. The remnant is Israel. The Jews who have been given salvation by God's grace. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The Jews in this passage here through the prophet Isaiah are going to one day realize that they're worthy of judgment just like Sodom and Gomorrah, but God's kept us a few. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. It gets even more clear. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 27. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. 
And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Here he says in the last days there's going to be a group of Israelites that he's going to have as his remnant, and he's going to protect them and bring them back into the land. But did you see what he's going to be doing? He's going to make a full end of the nations around and a judgment on them, and he's even going to raise the sea up as a part of his judgment on the nations. Does that remind us of anything in our Revelation study? Remember how at the end of the tribulation all the islands disappear? The mountains are all moved. It's going to be a total time where God changes everything, but elevates the remnant of Israel. Go to Zephaniah. If you're not sure where Zephaniah is, a lot of people can find Zechariah. Just back up a couple books, and you'll find Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2. Look at verse 7. It says on the... Sorry... Yeah, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, On the 24th, I'm reading Zechariah, that's why it didn't make sense. I'm like, hello. Zephaniah 2, 7, The seacoast shall become the possession of who? The remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord will be their God, and in in, in, their God will be mindful of them, and restore their fortunes. Jump over to chapter 3 of Zephaniah, look at verses 9 through 20. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples, that's the nations, to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This is the millennial kingdom, folks. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Remember when we did our study of Revelation of the 144,000, how they were going to be scattered to the whole earth, and during the tribulation period, there's going to be a multitude of all the nations that come to faith, and they're going to be given righteousness in the kingdom. Here we see a picture of the 144,000. You're going to see it even more clearly coming on a little later in the same passage. But the, the nations are going to be changed to a pure speech because of the daughter, they'll become the daughter of his dispersed ones, which is the Jews, and the hundred. 44,000. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Here's the description of the 144,000, folks. God says in those last days, I'm going to leave in your midst when I'm judging the nations. I'm going to leave in your midst a people of Israel, the, the Jews, and they're, well, how does the Bible describe them in Revelation chapter 14? No lie was found in their mouth. That's tying back to this prophecy here. And no, there shall not be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. The 144,000 are going to be left to preach all over the whole world. And they're going to be coming from Israel. There's going to be a remnant. There's always been a remnant. And as much as God's been judging the nation of Israel, and they were all scattered because of the rejection of the Messiah, the prophecies all along have been pointing to this day when that small portion are going to be, by God's grace, brought back. And the whole world will see it. I'll show you this in just a second. I don't have time tonight to take you to Zechariah 10. But if you want to write down Zechariah 10 verses 6 through 12, you'll see some more prophecy along this line. And to write down also Romans chapter 11, the whole chapter. Romans chapter 11, the whole chapter. Because if you understand what the scripture has been saying all along, Romans 11 becomes so clear where Paul says... Is God done with Israel? No. Has he cast them off forever? No. He's right now saving the Gentiles to make them jealous. But there will come a day when the Gentile time period will be over and all Israel that's left will be saved. And God's been doing this all along and he's got a plan. And so, folks, we need to understand that I love the fact that in the midst of all this judgment prophecy by Ezekiel, God has him take some of those hairs and put them in his garment. And I'm going to protect some. Because I've got a plan for them in the last days. You know what that plan for them in the last days ties to? It ties to something that happened in Ezekiel 5. Go real quickly to Ezekiel chapter 5. And look at verses 13 through 15. It says, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt 
a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and in fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord. I have spoken. God says, I put you in the midst of the nations. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. And because you knew better and took on their practices and not only did that, but brought them into my temple, I'm going to bring a horrific judgment on you all. And I'm going to do it in the sight of all the nations that I put you there for them to see my glory. I'm going to let them see my wrath through what I do for you. Oh, but there's something here that I want you to see. Remember that remnant? Remember that small portion that he's going to save at the end of the tribulation period? They're going to be brought into the kingdom. He's going to do for them when he blesses them and restores the fortunes of Jerusalem as well. He's going to do that so that the world and the nations around will see what he's doing when he restores them. As much as he brought the judgment to show the nations around what they had done, He's now going to, in the days to come, go to Ezekiel chapter 39 real quick, and we'll close with this tonight. Ezekiel 39, verses 21 through 29, there's a prophecy coming up that we'll get to in our study of Jesus tarries in Ezekiel 39 of what's going to happen. Look at Ezekiel 39, verses 21 through 29. Starting in verse 21. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. This is part of the reason why I think the end of Gog and Magog battle, it has to be at the end of the tribulation period. Some people put it prior to, when we get to this section, I'll lay out for you why I believe the scripture says that it has to happen at the end of the tribulation period. From that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemy's lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations." Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face from anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. By the way, has this happened yet? Has Israel, yes, they're back in the land, but not all of them. And they're not back in the way that the scripture says that they're going to be, because if we know the scriptures, they're a member of that portion that he put in the hem of his garment, some of those he was to throw into the fire. That remnant is going to be put through a trial as well. And the, what's left of that is going to bring into the land. And just like he judged them in front of all the nations, he's going to glorify them in front of all the nations for his sake. I say that to you for this reason. In less than a week, we're going to be voting. And I'm going to ask you to do something that sounds unpatriotic, but is actually very patriotic. I want you to vote for the candidate that will be the most pro-Israel. Because honestly, folks, it's not about rebuilding America. It is really, if we as Christians understand our purpose and our plan and, and God's plan and, and why he's got us here, we're to be salt and light. He's put us here to slow the decay and to reveal truth to the world. But the Bible's very clear. A judgment is coming on the whole world, is it not? The Bible's very clear that in the very last days, every single nation, if America exists, that means that includes us, will be against Israel. But he promised years ago, those who bless Israel, I'll bless. Those who curse Israel, I'll curse. I don't want you to vote for America to be turned around. I want you to vote for the candidate that will be in this time between now and when the rest of the world and everyone goes against Israel will be the most pro-Israel because we're, I'm going to beg you, spend next Tuesday night praying for the mercy of God on our country and vote for the mercy of God by voting for the candidate that you believe the leadership of the Spirit will be most pro-Israel because honestly that's the most important thing. It's not about turning America around. It's about God's eternal plan 
and everything is being put in place for all that he's going to do. And the time is coming quick. And so I'm going to vote for the one that I believe will slow the decay the most. There's going to be decay. It's going to happen. We're deserving of it. And the Bible says it won't be stopped. But between now and when he takes us home, the Bible says in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that's what I want you to do. Study, research, pray, and vote for the one who will help help us as a nation stay on Israel's side longer than the other one would. I love you. We'll see you in a few weeks. Have a great Thanksgiving.